Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Ezekiel 44. Last week, we stopped in the middle of Ezekiel 44, but I would be remiss if I didn't take the time to say thank you to Steve for covering for me on Sunday, very, very last minute. I don't think it gets more last minute than that, but when we were in the emergency room, we didn't get out until 4.45 a.m., and I said, you know, we better make some plans for tomorrow. So I texted the men today, and, you mean? pardon me? Today, you mean? Yeah, yeah, we better make some plans for today. Yeah. And I remembered that Steve said that he had a sermon in his back pocket, which I tell Micah and Alex and Tom and even Jeff. I say, just keep some sermon in your back pocket because you never know. But I'm very, very grateful. And I know I just got done saying this a few weeks ago. But I'm very, very grateful that GCA has become a healthy enough church that the worship of God continues whether I'm here or not, that it just goes on. And that's a good thing. Uh, I know of a church and I know of the pastor. I won't name any names, but when the pastor used to take a vacation or if the pastor got sick, they just closed down. They just closed the doors. We're not having church today because the pastor's sick. And that always seemed odd to me. Because it seems like, well, God is still God. Mm -hmm. The best example of that I've ever heard is when I was at the church out in Franklin, the pastor was missing one week, and a guest showed up. His wife met the guest at the door, and she said, oh, I'm so sorry, but the pastor's not here today. And the visitor said, is the pastor's God here today? I thought that was the best answer I'd ever heard yes. because he came to worship God, not to come worship the pastor. So I'm very, very glad that GCA has grown to the point where we're healthy enough that God is worshiped anyway, even if I have to lay down for a while. Mm -hmm. So good. And thank you, Steve. In fact, I'm going to make reference to a couple of things that Steve said on Sunday. Ezekiel 44 is endlessly fascinating to me for two main reasons. When we were doing our systematic theology, we talked about the characteristics or the attributes of God. In order for God to be God, what attributes must he have? And things like God to be God has no needs. We don't supply for God. God supplies for himself. He doesn't need us. We don't make him any better. And in fact, he asks questions like that. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Or saying to David, where are you going to build a house for me? The heavens can't contain God. So the characteristics of God include his aseity, his otherness. The very fact that God says things like, I'm not like you. You're not like me. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. So God very clearly wants us to understand that we're just simply not like him and that he's not like us. 
We're going to see another example of that in the second half of chapter 44, which is where we're beginning tonight. We're going to start at verse 15. We're going to see God's separation yet again from all of mankind because mankind is intrinsically sinful and there is nothing sinful about God. As Steve said on Sunday, God's chief characteristic, his primary attribute is that he is holy. And Steve was right in saying there are people who say that love is the main attribute of God, and that's simply not true. God is love, but that's not his main attribute. A.W. Pink does a very good job of showing that difference. And the way that he described the difference was he said, we can talk about God's loving grace, and we can talk about his loving kindness his loving salvation, but we can't talk about God's loving wrath. We can't talk about his loving condemnation. But when we talk about his holiness, we can talk about God's holy election, his holy grace, his holy salvation, and we can talk equally about his holy wrath and about his holy condemnation. In other words, Pink pointed out that the primary driving characteristic of everything that God does is his holiness, his otherness, his separateness from man. Every other attribute of God has to be in some way limited to particular moments or particular attributes of God so that they are defining some other characteristic or attribute of God. But the only one that describes God across the board is his holiness. Well, we're going to see that tonight. Because the priest is told that he's to wear particular holy garments that God has spelled out, garments that have already had a sacrifice over them, and so they are holy objects. And the priest has to put on that holy outfit when he goes in front of a holy God. But then he's told, don't ever wear that when you go out among the people. And the reason that is given for not wearing those garments among the people is so that you don't, the NASB says, so that you don't transmit holiness among the people. Young's literal translation says, so that you don't take some of the sanctification of the holiest of holies and take it out among the people. Okay, so what does that tell you first off? Well, it tells you that God, who is very other than us, very different than us, much, much holier than any of us ever were or ever will be, that that holiness is unique to God and God keeps it to himself and even the outer fringes of that holiness can't be treated haphazardly. That you can't treat holy objects as if they are common objects. You can't wear things that have been dedicated to God out among the people because the people themselves are unclean and that would make the holy object unclean. But it would also mean that the sinful people came in contact with the sanctification of God. And God says, no, no, you can't have that sanctification. That's separate. That's other. That's mine. Then God turns around and says that a priest who is ceremonially clean, who has been sanctified, can't go into 
any place where there's a dead body. Because if he goes in among a dead body, he becomes unclean. And for the next seven days, that priest remains unclean and can't go into the presence of the Holy of Holies because he is unclean. So it's almost like an anthropomorphism of holiness and sinfulness. Do you know what I mean when I say anthropomorphism? That's just a big word that says sometimes the Bible uses humanistic language to help us understand these very, very mysterious things. Mm -hmm. God has said these holy objects can't go among the unclean or else some of the sanctification of those objects would be among them, and you can't have that. By contrast, a priest can't go in anywhere where there's a dead person, and then God makes a couple of situations where he says, well, okay, if it's his wife or if it's a child of his, well, okay, God graciously says, okay, you can go in to him if it's a dead body, but for the next seven days you can't come to me because you're unclean now. You've been where the dead body is. So the uncleanness almost becomes a human characteristic that can't be taken in before God because it would make the purity and the sanctification of God somehow impure. It would somehow taint the perfect holiness of God. And you can't take anything sanctified to the perfect holiness of God and take it among the sinful people because it would somehow make the sinful people a little bit more sanctified. So don't do that. It's just really, really fascinating language. Now, I liked Steve's example on Sunday when he was talking about light. And he said, you can touch or light can touch you, but you can't touch light. And when he said that light doesn't transmit uncleanness. The best example I ever heard of that was actually Tom Newman, probably 10 years ago. Down in Chattanooga at the conference there, he, he used this example. He said that there was a dead skunk in the road out front of his house. And, of course, dead skunk, we all know how that smells. So he went out to the road with a shovel and scooped up the dead skunk to put it in a ditch and bury it to try to tamp down the smell because it had made his whole house smell bad. And he said, when I scooped up the dead skunk, I did it with a shovel because no one wanted to touch it, because it's dead. And he said, if I poured some water through that dead skunk carcass and handed you the water, would you drink it? And of course, the answer is no, no, you all made a terrible face and said, no, of course, I I would never drink dead skunk water. He said, but if I... Or live skunk water. Any kind of skunk water is right off the menu. But then Tom said, what if I picked up the skunk carcass, turned on my flashlight, and shined the light through the skunk carcass, and some of the light got on you? Would it upset you? No. Why, he said? Because that light doesn't transmit the filthiness of the dead skunk. Same kind of thing here. God is completely holy, encased in a light that no man approaches. God is perfection. God is light. And the light of God does not in any way transmit uncleanness. But 
objects here on earth that have been dedicated to God, that have been sanctified to God, that have had sacrifices made over them so that they are sanctified for God's exclusive use. Those objects, once they are given to God exclusively, can never be used for any kind of common or natural use. They only can be used in the worship of God, which is exactly why when Belshazzar threw a feast and started drinking out of the golden cups that were dedicated to God out of the temple, that's why a hand showed up and wrote on the wall, many, many, tickle you, Farson. You've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. Well, why did that happen at that exact moment? Well, because Belshazzar was basically insulting God and the worship of God by the very fact that he was drinking out of holy objects. So same idea. Once holy clothing has been dedicated to the worship of God and the priest has separated it and wears it, he can't wear it for any common use and he can't wear it when he goes out among the people. And the reason we're given is so that it does not transmit holiness to the people by those garments. And I find that fascinating. So let's start at verse 15. Ezekiel 44 verse 15. The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept the charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. Notice how often especially in the NASB translation, notice how often God says, me, 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 me. This is about the worship of me. You will bring my offering to me, and you will be my priest, and you shall come near me, and you will minister to me. God is the only entity in all eternity, and when I say God here, think Trinitarian God. He is the only entity personage who can get away with speaking about himself constantly and putting himself at the center of the religious universe and do it in such a way that there's absolutely no ego involved. If any of us started talking about me, come see me, I'm the important one, me, I need more me, you need to bring your gifts to me, well then eventually people are going to figure out, well you're, you're just egoed out of your head. You're just completely self-centered, and that becomes off-putting to people. But God says it over and over and over again, me, mine, me, worship me, bring me my gifts, bring me my sacrifices, worship me, get on your face before me, and there is no egocentricity involved in it for this one reason. God is also the only personage in the entire universe who absolutely deserves that level of worship. And because he deserves that, he can demand that. And it's not about his ego. It's about who he is. I'm God. You're not. And he keeps drawing that differentiation. And because I'm the all-powerful, because I'm the almighty, because I'm the creator of everything, you, the creation, you worship me. And we're not allowed to question that. We're not allowed to say, well, I don't think so. I don't want you for my God because you're kind of a tyrant. And you're... I can't tell you how many times people have tried to shout down my 
commitment to Calvinism by saying, well, your God, that Calvinistic God's a monster. And you've heard that before. And the answer I always give back is, yeah, but that's the God of the Bible. You got to live with that. The God of the Bible talks exactly that way about himself. And if you don't like it, that God will also squash you. So get in line with that God. He says, the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary, when the sons of Israel went astray from me, where'd they go astray from? From me. Well, then they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. Notice that at no point in this declaration does God take the time to say, and is that okay with them? Check with them, please, and see if my plan fits their plan. There's no hint that God is even considering what human beings think of what he is declaring, what he is doing. His worship, this is how you do it. These are the animals. This is the temple. This is the Holy of Holies. If you come in front of me, you wear these clothes. You have that turban on. You only come in front of me when I say you come in front of me. You only stay for as long as I say that you can stay. And don't you dare take any of my stuff out there to those people. That's the God of the Bible because he's separate. He's distinct. He's holy. And he's not like us. So they shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table and minister to me and keep my charge. And it shall be that when they enter at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments and wool shall not be on them while they are ministering in the gates of the inner court and in the house. Linen turbans shall also be on their head and linen undergarments shall be on their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything which makes them sweat. Why? Why? Well, a couple of reasons, I think. First off, the work of the worship of God is continual, constant, never-ending. It just continues on and on and on and on. So if they were dressed in wool which makes you very warm for those of you who have wool jackets or wool coats or wool suits. You know that wool gets you really hot really soon, which is why you only wear them in the winter. God knows that. He's into the details. So he says, don't wear anything wool. Just wear linen so it's light, so it's breezy, so that the work can keep going on and that you're never going to get tired in the work. And when they go out into the outer court, into the outer court to the people, they shall put off their garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers. Notice the word holy describing the chambers. The chamber itself has been dedicated to the things of God. Therefore, the chamber itself is holy, is separate. It's a place where only those things can go that are dedicated to God. Nothing unclean or nothing common can be taken into the holy chambers. But the garments that the priests have been wearing when they were ministering before God have to lay in holy chambers. 
and then they shall put on other garments so that they may not transmit holiness to the people with their garments. Also, they shall not shave their heads, yet they shall not let their locks grow long. They shall only trim the hair of their heads. That's why to this very day, the Orthodox Jews wear long beards and will not shave their head. In the Old Testament, shaving your head is often a sign of repentance or a sign of shame. If a woman's head is shaved, it's because she's been shamed in some way. Also, in Egypt, the priests of the Egyptian gods commonly did shave their heads. And so God is making a distinction again. You're my people, you're my priests, and so you're to let your hair and your beard never be shaved off completely But also, he says, don't let it grow too long. He's not looking for Ted Nugent lookalikes here. He's looking for people who are properly trimmed, but to let their hair never be shaved. Nor shall any of the priests drink wine when they enter into the inner court. I've read so many commentaries about that. I think it's because God wants them to always be in their right mind so that they know what they're doing and why they're doing it, and so that they're doing it attentively. So they're doing it with all their heart and all their mind, and they're not just doing it by rote, and they're not doing it under the influence of alcohol. But it might also be so that the joy that they have in the worship of God is not misassigned as being, well, they've been drinking wine, that's why they're so happy. That's why they enjoy the presence of the Lord so much. But the command is, nor shall any of the priests drink wine when they enter the inner court. They shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins from the offspring of the house of Israel or a widow who is the widow of a priest. All of those rules whether it's shaving your head, not drinking wine, only marrying a virgin, all of that has to do with them remaining ceremonially pure, ceremonially clean. So nothing in their life can in any way hamper the worship of God. Moreover, here's their purpose, and I think this is the purpose of the the head shaving, the wine drinking, the getting married to virgins, because their whole purpose, according to verse 23, is moreover they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. So God's purpose in the priesthood is so that the Levites can teach the people God is holy And because God is holy, you have to differentiate between those things that are right and holy, just and pure, and the things that are profane and avoid the profane things. By the way, I think I can apply that to us today and say if God's intention is that the priests, the Levites, show people how to avoid profanity, Profanity, by the way, in the truest sense of the word, not just ugly language, but a mode of living that is too sinful, too earthly, too fleshly. That's what profanity is in the Bible. And if the priests of God are to teach the people how to be pure and how to be ceremonially clean and how to avoid profane things, I think that tells you something about the character of God. 
that God doesn't want his people involved in profane things. Apply that accordingly. And I didn't mean to look right at you as I said, apply that accordingly. I didn't. Also then, in a dispute, these Levitical priests will take their stand to judge. They shall judge it according to my ordinances. And they shall also keep my laws and my statutes in all their appointed feasts and sanctify my Sabbaths. So the priests are going to be the leaders in Israel to show the people of Israel how to act like the people of God, how to keep the ordinances of God, how to keep the laws and the statutes, how to keep the feasts, and to sanctify or separate the holy Sabbaths of God. And they shall not go to a dead person to defile themselves. However, now God gives a little caveat, even though he says they're not going to go to a dead person. He says, however, for their father or their mother, for their son, for their daughter, for a brother, or for a sister who does not have a husband, then they may defile themselves. They may go in among the dead people. But after he is cleansed seven days, then that has to elapse for him. So after he has gone in among a dead body, he then is ceremonially unclean for seven days. He has to go through all the cleanliness rituals again before he can approach God. Why? Because of the same thing I've been saying over and over. God is separate. God is holy. God is pure. God is light. All of that is true. And any time that the priests who have been ceremonially clean so that they could go and minister before him and wait on him, once they have gone near a dead body, the uncleanness of death is on them and they have to wait seven days before they can go in front of God again so that they are ceremonially pure again because God is just that different than us. He's just that holy. He's just that righteous that we with all of our impurities and all our uncleannesses cannot go into the presence of God. There has to be something that cleans us up, that cleanses us, that makes us ready to go into the presence of God. And God keeps showing that. He keeps demonstrating it. You can't just burst into my presence because I'm God and I'm holy and you're not. Well, then thank God for Christ. Mm -hmm. Because that's the only way any of us are going to manage to go into the presence of God. Any of us are going to manage to get to God and be clean. The Bible says we're going to be spotless, unblemished, not just ceremonially clean, but actually clean, especially when the righteousness of Christ is placed on our account so that we stand before God not only fully cleansed, but also fully righteous. Elder Ward used to use the word, we've been righteousified. Once we've been righteousified, we can stand before God knowing that God hasn't lowered his standard to let us in. Rather, he has raised us to the level where we can come in. And he does that through the purification that is offered in Christ. But here he's demonstrating the difference again, that if you are in any way, if a priest is in any way impure, if a priest's mother dies and he goes to the funeral, he can't go in front of God. Mm -hmm. They get to be buried the very day they die. 
But still, the priest has to go through the ceremonial cleansing. He still has to go through all that before he can get in front of God again because God's separate. Yeah, well, there was also among the Jews the custom of waiting three days, which you see not only with Jesus remaining in the grave for three days and three nights, but Jesus waiting when Lazarus died. He waited three days, three nights, because their custom was that till three days and three nights had passed, you weren't truly, genuinely dead. The spirit hadn't left the body. And so the three-day, three-night thing sometimes comes into play in the burying of people, too. A Jewish body couldn't be left in that unclean state like on the cross. If he had died, then it had to be off the cross because that made the land impure. So it had to be off the cross by sundown. But, but no, the, if you were burying a dead one, you'd wait three days. A dead relative, you'd wait three days. Then why have I always heard that the Jews buried them right away? Well, I don't know. Well, Jesus I was don't. buried right away because that was... Yes, put in a tomb. I I agree with that. They're put into a tomb or put into any kind of burial chamber for three days, three nights before they're considered truly dead. Remember that uh, Lazarus was in a tomb and Jesus told him to come out. But notice the people were still there after three days and three nights. They were still around the tomb. They were still waiting because three days, three nights is the waiting period. That's why the women who went to anoint the body of Jesus waited three days, three nights. Then they came to anoint the body, and he was gone. So that's just all part of Jewish custom. Yeah. So if he is ceremonially unclean, then he has to be cleaned for seven days before he can go in front of an absolutely holy God. Verse 27 says, And on the day that he goes into the sanctuary, into the inner court to minister in the sanctuary, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. Why does he have to immediately when he comes back? Why does he have to bring a sin offering? Because he was unclean. He's impure. And so an offering has to be made for him in order for him to be ceremonially clean again and be able to stand before God. I'm only emphasizing all of that just so that you can get a feel for the fact that God keeps saying, I'm not like you. I'm completely holy. There's no sin or impurity anywhere in or around me. And, and you're humans, and you are unclean, and you are impure, and you are sinful, and before you can come in front of me, you had better be ceremonially clean to even be accepted before me for my worship. Just to serve me, you have to be clean. That's why it's important, again, that we Christians have Christ making us capable of worshiping God. He welcomes us to go and pray to God and call him Father. Christ is the one who gives us the authority to go do all that because in and of ourselves, we can never be clean enough to approach that kind of holy God. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir, you had your hand up. From a human standpoint, I'm not understanding any of, of this. So now I understand why God says his ways are different than ours. I don't, I don't get this yeah. from a human standpoint. Can't get from God's standpoint because I'm not him. Right, right. You know, it's it's interesting you say that. I got a phone call 
yesterday, I guess it was, from a fellow I haven't heard from in years, but he said he's been listening all these years and listening to Ezekiel and stuff. He's out in California. And uh, he said, boy, some of that Ezekiel stuff is difficult to figure out. And, and he had me go through the categories again. Who are we talking about when we're reading Ezekiel? You know, are we talking about believing Jews? Well, no, they're part of the church. Are we talking about, you know, well, then unbelieving national Israel, who Paul talks about at the end of Romans 11. That was all part of our conversation. But he reached the point where he said very much what you just said. He said, some of this is just so hard to grasp. And I said, right, so what you need to do, and I'm going to give you the same advice, what you need to do is read it and say, well, that's what God says. That's what God thinks. This is how God represents himself, even if I don't understand it, if I don't comprehend it, humanly speaking, I still have to bow to the fact that God said this is how it is. Mm-hmm. And if he says it, what can you do about it? Yeah. So, you can do it. Even in my early days when I was reading, uh, <laughs> reading the Bible more for myself and less from other people telling me what to think about the Bible... There were parts of it that I really had a hard time with. Reading the first time that I was seeing election, predestination, uh, limited atonement especially, the, the idea that God would choose people before the foundation of the world and that those other people were like brute beasts. Uh, that was really tough to read because I was, I was a people person. I'm I'm a fan of everybody, and going to go and save them all. Yeah, and and the very fact that God would express Himself as choosing and electing people, and that being anyway, it was all so difficult. So I remember saying for like six months, my mantra to anybody who would listen was, I said, when I read the Bible, even when I don't understand it, I believe it, because some of what I read, I don't understand. But I believe it because I'm convinced it's the word of God. So, yeah, there's going to be things throughout the Bible that we're going to say, man, that's a head scratcher. You know, how does God do this? Why did God do that? Why don't more donkeys talk? And why, and why don't we get to know what the thunder said? And why there's, there's just stuff in the Bible that you go, I don't understand. I don't understand why Jesus is waiting so long. I don't know how he's putting up with the stuff we see in the world today. It seems that the world is overrun with the enemies of God and the haters of Christ. And I keep thinking, well, come on, you're God. Come back and, and justice and holiness and righteousness should break out. And those people should pay the price and come on. Come get us out of here. Come get us out of here. Preferably now. So there's a lot of stuff I don't understand, but I believe it. I don't understand how he's going to regather every Israelite, all 12 tribes, place them back in their land and send angels out to regather and regroup Israel. I don't know how that's going to happen. I just know it's going to. And, you know, since you hit that part of of my brain, I I have to say one more thing just because I can. And don't forget, I didn't get to talk on Sunday. So it's all stored up. But there are aspects, there are parts of of this whole Christian thing that 
that though I don't comprehend it, I keep saying that I believe it, and then I start giving you examples of, of what I don't understand and what I don't comprehend, but I believe it because it's God's Word, not only because I can find prophetic instances, which is one of the things that I point to so frequently to prove that the Bible is God's Word. I say, look, here's a prophecy that actually came true in history. But the Bible says things about me and things about you. The Bible says that if we believe in Christ, that if we follow and trust Christ, that there are certain characteristics that are going to become true of us. And sure enough, those things have come true of me without my doing them. I didn't make a decision to to be like I am. And yet I am. And the Bible said that's what I'd be like. And the power of God through his spirit drove me to be like that. And so it's yet another evidence of the Bible being genuine and true for me personally, as well as for human history generally. And once you see that kind of stuff, there's, there's like no going back. So when you see the stuff in the Bible that you, that you have difficulty with, you end up having to say, well, God said it. God proves to us who we are, and he proves to us the world is his, but he hasn't explained all about his kingdom or all about himself. That's exactly right, because he didn't have to. He didn't have to explain himself. What did he say to Moses? When Moses said, okay, you've told me to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Yes, well, he did say that. I don't speak well. I, I can't. And God said, I make the mouth, okay? He didn't add, okay, but you know, basically God's sarcastic tone, okay? But when he said, when I go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, Pharaoh's going to say, well, there's a whole pantheon of gods. There's a god of the Nile and a god of the flies and the god of the frogs, and there's the sun god, and there's the moon god, and there's all these gods. Who should I say sent me? And God says, I am. Yeah. In other words, I'm the one that is, and all those other gods are not. I am. I have amness. I have amnosity. I am, and they am not. And so you go and say to Pharaoh, the one that is, the I am, said, those are my people. Let him, let him go free. And so I keep having to go back again and again and again to, well, God is, and he's under no obligation to explain himself. So the very fact that he gives us this glimpse into who he is, is enough for me. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, at least he revealed himself. And amazing. And amazing. He created us and let us know it. Yeah, and I can't wait to get to heaven and see the rest of it. And, and, and because of who he is, and I know who he is because he reveals who he is to me on the inside. Yeah. I can't, and I, I believe it and I'm thankful, but I can't comprehend how somebody like him would associate himself with somebody like me. Yeah. That is just I don't think there's anybody in this room that can comprehend why somebody like him would associate with a person like you. But, <laughs> see, now I just picked on you, which makes you a member of GCA. I so, say, I don't believe it, but I can't. Yeah, I, I know. Have you ever tried to not believe? I mean, I really put some effort into saying, that's it, I'm done with this. I couldn't do it. 
because God simply is, and if you're his, you're his. And if he puts faith in you, you're going to believe. Even in my deepest trials and my attempts to just be done with all this, the one that I kept arguing with was him. I was arguing with him about whether he existed. And then I realized I'm arguing with him because he clearly exists. So there's no escaping God. Okay, let's, let's keep going. I could talk like this all night, as I think you all know. But after he's cleansed for seven days, the priest can then go back in. But he brings a sin offering with him, verse 28. And it shall be with regard to an inheritance for them that I and their inheritance. That's what God said originally all the way back in the Levitical law that the Levites weren't going to get any land in Israel, that God was going to be their portion. And so he says the same thing here. They're not going to have an inheritance within the land of Israel because God is their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel because I am their possession. Notice that God says, they're going to belong to me. I take them to myself. They're going to follow my rules. They're going to follow my laws. They're going to serve me. They're going to be at my table. They're going to wear the right clothes. They're going to bring all the sacrifices. They are going to serve continually before me, and they are going to serve and work and serve and work. And then God says, that's such an honor. That's such a privilege that even if they get nothing else, the very fact that I let them into my presence the very fact that I allow them to serve me, I'm their possession. I'm their inheritance. Mm -hmm. In other words, God places himself above absolutely everything else. If you have nothing in this lifetime, but you have God, you've got it all. Mm -hmm. I mean, if God can design for himself... An, an unexplainable, unfathomable, heavenly estate. And if he can plan to reward his son for everything the son did. I mean, if God wants to whip up a reward for his son, what kind of reward is that going to be? He's only got the entire universe to work with. Mm-hmm. And then Paul turns around and calls us joint heirs with Christ. That what Christ receives as a reward, we share in? Oh, well, then it really doesn't matter what you get or don't get in this lifetime. It really doesn't matter if you're rich or poor in this lifetime. You're going to be the beloved bride. Because you're going to be the beloved bride. And if Christ wants to um, reward his bride, for lack of a better word, then just how grand is that reward going to be is my point. So God sees himself even here in talking with the priest. He sees himself as enough. He sees himself as adequate. He sees himself as the inheritance for the priest, the reward for the priest. The priests have to do the work. Work, 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 work. I command you to work, 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 to be in my presence, to keep yourself pure, to go and judge the people, to teach the people the difference between clean and unclean, pure and impure. All of that is the work that I've assigned you. And the very fact that I myself have allowed you to be part of my plan in Israel is enough for you. Because I'm enough for you. And if you have me, that's enough. That's God's attitude about himself. So, it shall be an inheritance for them that I am their inheritance. 
and you shall give them no possession in Israel, because I am their possession. And they shall eat the grain offerings, and the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings, and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. In other words, whatever people devote to God, whatever they bring to God, whatever sacrifice they bring to God, the animals, the grain, the wine, the oil, whatever they bring to God, because the priests, the Levites, are completely dependent on their work in the temple for their livelihood, then whatever comes into the temple belongs to those priests. Which means they don't get an inheritance, but there are 11 other tribes that are constantly bringing a tenth of all their stuff to the Levites. Are they going to go hungry? No, absolutely not. Not only is their inheritance God, but they're going to have adequate food and grain and wine and oil and clothes and everything else provided for them by the people of God. And the first of all, the first fruits of every kind. So God's going to be reinstituting sacrifices, grain offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and the devoted things, and then first fruits. All the stuff that he assigned in the Levitical law, he's going to once again reinstitute within Israel for the support of those who do the work of keeping his temple and his worship going. Why? Because he's arranging it in such a way that his worship in Israel never stops. It's a 24-hour a day, every week of the year, every month, every new moon, every Sabbath, constant worship of God. Why? Because God deserves it. He doesn't at any point say, okay, you're all caught up. That's enough. That's good. You can go now. His worship for a thousand years continues nonstop. So the first of all, the first fruits and every kind of every contribution of every kind from all your contributions shall be for the priests. And you shall also give to the priest the first of your dough to cause a blessing to rest on your house. The priests shall not eat any bird or beast that has died from any natural death or has been torn to pieces. In other words, the priests could only eat those things that were sacrificed to God because the priests have been sanctified. Therefore, even the clothes they wear have to be sanctified and even the food they eat has to be sanctified. It all has to be stuff that is set apart for God and his worship. That's the only thing the priests can partake of. Make sense? So if you get nothing else from tonight, from chapter 44, get that God keeps saying, I'm not like you. I'm completely separate from you. I am utterly distinct from you. There's nothing about you that improves me. In fact, you need to be on your face in front of me. You need to be worshiping me. You need to be bringing your sacrifices to me. And by the way, in the New Testament, that idea doesn't just disappear. Instead, Paul picks it up and says that we should live our lives like living sacrifices. We should treat our bodies like living sacrifices to God. Because the sacrifice to God never stops. The worship of God never stops. 
He's got angels around his head crying about his holiness all the time. And so if that's the way that God chose to represent himself, chose to present himself, chose to encase himself, then we certainly ought to get on the side that God is on and give him the worship that only he rightly deserves. Make sense? Okay, now, I wish that I could make the rest of Ezekiel really interesting. But man, the next few chapters are... You can even read any commentary you want. Pick up any commentary you want. Suddenly the commentaries get really brief through the next few chapters because there's not a lot to say. There's not a lot to interpret or understand. It's just God continuing to say what the land portions are going to be and what the prince's portion is going to be. It's all God just spelling out this is how it's going to be in Israel. And that just kind of wraps up the book of Ezekiel after that. There's going to be water that comes out of the temple, and and then the book of Ezekiel is just kind of done. So next week, we'll try to make some, some big leaps through these last few chapters, and I will try very hard to make it as interesting as I can make it, uh, sans kidney stones. As long as I can avoid that part of life, then next week we'll work through the end of Ezekiel. Then, after the book of Ezekiel, whenever we get done with that, it is my plan to go to the book of Esther because historically, that's kind of where we're at. Babylon is going to be taken over by the Medo-Persians, and that just happens to be the time that Esther is all about. And the book of Esther is, is great fun and narrative, and you'll see the hand of God over and over in it. Unlike all of the stuff we've been reading in Ezekiel, there's just facts, figures, and details. And I'm thinking, I want your vote on this one, I'm thinking we should treat the book of Esther the same way it's treated in most Jewish synagogues. In most synagogues, when they read the book of Esther, the people bring noisemakers, little horns or klaxon horns or noisemakers to make it known how much they dislike the enemy of Israel. You know what you're bringing. All right, so plan accordingly because every time we read about him, I think we can all make horrible noises. <laughs> and for heaven's sakes, don't tell your grandchildren. But <laughs> That's right, that's right. So... Consider that. That's where I think we're going next in the Old Testament. I shudder to ask any questions about tonight. Are we okay? I think we got our questions out of the way as we were going. All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.